Yo, what's up, everybody? It's Real Sankara Hours. Real Sankara Hours, your favorite black Marxist political podcast. Today is September 9th, 2021. Thursday, September 9th, 2021. Uh, this is a free episode. We got a lot of stuff to talk about on this one. Um, but, you know, to uh, follow us and keep up to date with what we're doing, follow us. Um, follow the podcast, I mean, follow the podcast on, on Twitter, at Sankara Hours on Twitter, and to keep this podcast running and to support us, uh, become a patron at patreon.com slash real Sankara Hours. $5 a month gets you bonus episode, bonus episodes anywhere between like a dollar to $4 a month. Uh, basically, it's just, you know, um, kind support for the episode for the podcast that we really appreciate but it, it doesn't give you free episodes and um you can but also... they're good episodes we, we yeah. did rodney last week right yeah we did yeah so if if you're into like a lot of our bonus episodes we do like uh theory reading so for example walter rodney's how europe underdeveloped africa uh, we talk a lot. We've been talking a lot about that in our bonus episodes. So, if you want to check that stuff out, again, five dollars a month, patreoncom hours. And another way to support the podcast, PayPal.me/realsoncarhours. So that's just to make a, you know, one-time donation to the podcast. Those are all different ways um, to support the podcast and support independent Black media and support what we're doing over here. Um, but anyway, yeah, we're going to be talking about um, the Texas anti-abortion law, Hurricane Ida, um, the s- seeming decline of the U.S. empire, and the Great Resignation. But anyway, yeah, let's introduce ourselves. My name is Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson Five on Twitter. And this is Peter M. Gunn. Um, oh, I have a joke for you. I'll I'll say it now. Knock knock. Who's there? 9 <laughs> right, I'm curious where this is going to go. 9-11 who? You said you'd never forget. <laughs> oh, that's a good... All right. Sorry, I had to get that out because... Um, I guess this will be like... You know, this will be the week where I guess we'll talk about that stuff. Um since yeah. we're coming up yeah two days it'll be 20 years uh mm-hmm. since uh well we'll get to that later but you know other events have been happening um for example yeah for example uh hurricane ida which you know i've been watching and very concerned because i do have some friends in new orleans and uh and i mean it seemed to not go as bad though most of the city was uh without power though that's starting to come back i think it's mostly come back by the time we're recording this but new orleans is always in need of a lot of help um you know it's i mean it really is kind of like a sacrifice zone for america i think in kind of the way it's treated in many ways and so we'll definitely put some links uh for that uh you know for like uh, mutual aid people that are actually doing real stuff and not, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex stuff. 
Uh, but, you know, over then its neighbor to the east or west. Sorry. Um, it's right. Yes, I do. Sorry. Louisiana borders Texas is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, so that's the west. So, okay. Because I'll sorry, because you, you were talking about the hurricane <laughs> uh, before before uh, we go on to Texas, because um, the hurricane also did some damage to New York City. And there's been like some very devastating footage of uh, the immense flooding in new york city um and just you know new york city not keeping up with its own infrastructure uh updating its infrastructure for hurricanes and uh, i'll say this because i used to i briefly lived in new york city um in fall of 2012 and that's when hurricane sandy hit and i remember how much it uh devastated many parts of new york city um and you know, it. I, f- I felt like that was sort of a warning sign in terms of, you know, cli- climate change and the reality to, to, yeah. to come. Yeah, be- because, yeah, this is going to be a more regular occurrence. And, yeah, so it does remain to be seen. Because there is, on some levels, there's, like, more damage in on some parts. Like, there's more damage to power lines with Ida than with Katrina. And, like, it'll be interesting in places like New Orleans or, you know, in sort of the less, you know, the poorer sections of New York. Like, how much how much is there going to be, like, an actual effort to rebuild and how much is it going to be like, well, it's just going to get messed up anyway. So it will be, you know, basically, yeah, creating sacrifice zones as part of, uh, you know, the impending climate catastrophes. So... I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff where it's not like, oh, the end of the world, but it's just, you know, kind of gradual. And that's kind of the stuff we have to be more vigilant in mm-hmm. fighting. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so Texas, uh, Louisiana's neighbor to the, to the west. Um, yeah, there was an, a, vi- a fucking an, did it. Yeah, a, a fucking anti-abortion law. This one is like, so what makes this one particularly egregious is um basically it's a law it's a new law in texas that went into effect recently and it bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy which is which is which is functionally banning abortion right which is yeah because that's before many women even know that they're pregnant um and basically in terms of the law it bans abortion as, as soon as cardiac activity is detectable which is around six weeks which is around six weeks which is before again many women even know that they're pregnant um so which is yeah basically effectively banning abortion um and the supreme court which is a conservative majority at this point six three has largely been pretty quiet about this you know and particularly when it comes to uh enforcing roe v wade um so yeah if the supreme court doesn't really challenge this then it just sets the precedent for other states and conservative states and in in districts and cities to pass similar anti-abortion laws um yeah which which, yeah yeah this one is again particularly egregious right right well texas loves being the you know, in the race to the bottom of, like, Republican state legislatures, 
And uh, since Democrats basically have given up contesting state legislatures on a nationwide basis, uh, there, yeah, I mean, all these bills are like written by Alec or, you know, think tanks and they just, you know, photocopy them and just change the state because, you know, these legislators don't actually read any of this shit. Um, yeah, they're just told what to pass. And yeah, Texas, of course, is like, yeah, we'll be the ones that do the ghoul shit, the ghoul, most ghoulish one uh, to get, you know, to be out in front. And then every, you know, all the other states might follow suit. Uh, I think, you know, I've always been curious as to growing up, why is the Supreme Court responsible for protecting abortion rights? And no one's, you know, and it is possible not to get too much in this stuff because, you know, it's a lovely uh, battering ram for anyone who, you know, doesn't want to vote for Democrats, though. I mean, now it's gone, but they're still trying to be like, all you who voted for Jill Stein, this is your fault. You have blood on your hands. Um but I, I, you know, the Democrat, like, obviously, Republicans, you know, are trying to control women's bodies. That's not, you know, we're not not arguing that. But I do wonder if, you know, and yes, this is my cis male opinion or whatever. But I do wonder if the way in which abortion rights are constantly, uh, you know, kept on that razor's edge instead of like any, you know, actually passing robust legislation, you know, the number of different times democrats had majorities in congress i feel like that is also part of the system you know the system of patriarchy so it's something that i don't know you know but it's I, fucked up i mean it this shit is pretty infuriating you know it it, it is and uh, so t- uh two things one a lot of these anti-abortion types say that they're pro-life um but you know they're pro-life as long as like, as long as it's a fetus. When the fetus is, is born, it becomes a full-fledged like human being. Um, you know they they don't give a fuck about that life. Like that baby, like you know they don't they don't care about like pre-K child care or paid maternity paid maternity leave. Um, you know they don't really care about like robustly funded public schools, especially robustly funded education that. Uh, provides like you know equal and equitable access across racial and class lines like you know they don't really care about that and they don't care about like you know children especially non-white children the 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 real dangers that they face oh oh no they do don't you know uh margaret sanger uh eugenicist and therefore (laughs) uh which you know i guess to speak on that like yeah I mean, there's definitely some pretty fucked up, you know, history in, you know, birth control, like the who, you know, who the birth control pill was tested on, all that stuff. But it doesn't change the fundamental issue that, like, you know, reproductive autonomy is a right for all women. Like, it just fucking is. And, like, every sane country understands that. Yeah, well, I mean, well, look further south, Mexico. I mean, Mexico just basically uh, legalized um abortion like just recently actually um and 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 yeah like um by the way like reproductive justice like the reproductive justice movement has also been led by uh women of color as well so i think that's um you know to the point about margaret sanger like i think that's another element that has to be appreciated is that like um 
you know, f- uh, framing it as uh, framing abortion as like, you know, woman's woman's bodily autonomy, um, you know, that framing and that that movement has largely been led by uh, women of color in this country. But um, the, the, the flip side of it, I think another reason why um, that uh, the right and Republicans are have have latched on to anti-abortion uh uh is kind of like because the this you know the history of like margaret sanger like planned parenthood of basically using um abortion and, and sterilization basically to sterilize like black women and non-white women uh the 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 other flip side is that um this fear of uh the the, the great replacement that white nationalist fear. So the theory of the great replacement that white nationalists talk about is that um, white people as a population will be replaced by uh, quote unquote undesirable non-whites through. Um, right. And, si- and yeah, since, uh... yeah, through immigration and interracial dating and uh, basically more non non-white babies being born yeah. actually like a, a couple years ago i i'm gonna I'm to look this up but um it was a couple years ago it was the first year that there were more non-white children being born than white children and like we talked about in the previous free episode there was uh the latest the 2020 census data came out and it showed that non-hispanic the non-hispanic white population has declined while latino and asian populations have uh, yeah. increased but that's because i was looking up apparently that was because like there was just uh the census changed their methodology in terms of how they asked questions so basically what happened is that because they allowed people to mark that they were multiracial there is a large increase in people identifying as multiracial because mostly because of change in the, in the methodology um, so yeah. there, so basically, like there wasn't as steep of a decline in the non-Hispanic white population, but what a lot of these like white national and far right types like they still play on this fear, this anxiety within huge segments of white America that um, their uh, their sense of white power deriving from being the majority population in America. They play on that anxiety that, hey, look, these, you know, immigrants and interracial dating and like more, you know, black and brown people having babies. That's that's a threat to your white way of life. And, your- and, and why and why don't all these white women want to reproduce with me? What's wrong with me? Oh, <laughs> it must. You no, know, we need to pass a law to force them to do it because, uh, you know, otherwise they don't want to go anywhere near. Me. Yeah. Uh, and, and, that, and that's. Yeah, and that's why, like, and this is how it ties into anti-abortion because so, latch white nationalists aligning with anti-abortion is a way to prevent white women from getting abortions, which is basically like, in their frame of mind, they see the the primary role of white women is to produce white babies for the white nation, and so if white women are having abortions, then it's like, well, they're not doing their job of reproducing for the white race and increasing the numbers of white people in america so i think like that's another uh yeah thing that has to uh, (laughs) yeah be recognized i mean also like in the sense that you know the i mean yeah abortion stuff is 
you know, one of the major mobilizing issues for the Christian right. And the Republican part, the you know, current incarnation of the Republican Party came into power by mobilizing the Christian right, mm-hmm. you know, through Goldwater, you know, starting with Goldwater into Reagan, blah, blah, blah. And so they... And yeah, I mean, that is like the Christian right is like pretty explicitly white supremacist. Like that's white Jesus. And, you know, not just Protestantism, because also Catholic, but like American Catholicism is, you know, basically Protestantism at this point in the sense of like that manifest destiny, like, you know, white, like European white people, you know, were chosen by God to construct America with, you know, and then rule the world. I mean. That, like, you know, that is, the Christian right believes that. And this is, like, the mobilizing issue for them. And sort of, they had to keep it on a slow drip, you know, to keep, you know, mobilizing. And, of course, you know, I guess it was, yeah, it was kind of like a something that they had. I don't know, there's all these rules, of course, whatever, that, you know, Republicans and Democrats hashed out in the 70s and 80s, like, you know, so they could share power more effectively. And then the Republicans like, yeah, we're just going to do all this. And it does seem like Democrats never, you know, found any like effective counter mobilization strategies to any of this stuff. And like, it shouldn't be an issue the way this is. I, people will say like, it's a wedge issue, but honestly, like when you talk to most people, you can generally get them on board with the idea, like whatever your personal thoughts about, abortion like it shouldn't be people shouldn't go to jail for having one and uh like you uh you know like it should be safe and affordable to do and like any dude who like has bad opinions about this like i guarantee you you've known like a woman in your life like that you care about that's had an abortion and uh it's like you're basically saying that person should have gone to jail for that, like that she is a murderer. So like, don't be fucking idiot. You know? um, uh, yeah, and like, yeah, and to double down it, like it's incredibly fucking rich for any heterosexual man to like support any kind of legislation that would criminalize women getting abortions. Like, um, I like. I mean, here, here's the thing. I'll say this, like. It, it, you know especially like men like because i'll hear some men be like oh how come you're having you know so many children like criticizing women for getting pregnant and then wanting to get an abortion and it's like well it takes two to tango she didn't get pregnant by herself so you know it's really like i always i i find it like just very fucking rich that you know it's really easy to attack women for like you know uh unwanted pregnancies or whatever but you know, people don't really go after the dudes as much because she didn't I mean, get pregnant. Like she didn't get pregnant on her own. Like I, I yeah. always find it like very fucking rich when like it's so easy yeah. to attack like you know women for getting like unwanted pregnancies. But it's like, well, who who was the dude? Like what? Like you know, is what's what's he doing? Like what is like, how, what's yeah. his involvement in the picture? So I just I yeah I find it incredibly fucking rich. And yeah, if you if you're a dude and if you're a heterosexual man and and like you're mouthing off i mean i would hope you wouldn't be listening to this it's just just fucking rich when straight men support anti-abortion shit i it's it's just really fucking rich to me and it's uh, yeah i mean it's not truthfully it's not any of your business like it's medical procedure right right yeah 
I think the fact that like even having that debate shows how deeply the Reaganite ideology seeped into everyone that mm-hmm. like we would even be having the debate as like, oh, well, you know, should abortion be used for birth control or whatever? All the dumb shit people were arguing about back in 2004, like there's everyone should be on the consensus that like uh, it's yeah, it's a medical procedure that people have a right to everyone has a right to, you know, have safely like for their own decisions like you don't get to no one passes laws about whether or not someone can have a fucking hip replacement all right so right it's the same yeah. fucking thing and that they you know that these people still do it is because uh for some reason i guess they see it as still an effective political tactic uh because you know that's that's the current structure of the republican party and i i guess the only I mean, I think there needs to be an actual strategy to, like, demobilize the Christian right. Let's just say it that way. Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Um, and and, uh, and, and, to, and to end the, this part in transition, um, I forgot who made this point, but I think it's other people have made this point. I just want to reiterate it. Um, that, like, the Democrats really should have focused on making the right to an abortion federal law and instead of just leaving letting the supreme court like take control of protecting Roe v. i don't know i don't know why like the democrats didn't even think about like uh tr- so they so they could uh use it as a bludgeoning tactic for elections every four years and Pro- yeah I, and that's it, that's my say that's my understanding of it at this point i don't know what else to say and now the supreme court again six yeah. to three conservative so but but also it's just worth pointing out that like the idea that like the court is conservative or liberal like depending on who's in there like is not necessarily like how it functions historically like right yeah like it's it is a political body but it's a political body that doesn't like necessarily auto like it incorporates both you know elements of the political spectrum to preserve you know a bourgeois imperial state and so it makes rulings based on sort of like what uh you know it sees is best for you know social order i mean like like the supreme court wasn't progressive wasn't like oh well the democrats got in a bunch of liberals to uh you know in the 50s so that like we got brown versus board like you know or oh well it's just because you know the well you know the liberals of the day in the 1890s like or whatever you know they they've lost you know they didn't get their justices in and that's why we got dred scott so you know it was actually or plessy versus ferguson it was actually the fault of the people who didn't vote so you know why plessy versus ferguson got issued i mean or whatever you know shit like that i mean that's i'm just saying people need to like have a broader historical view what the supreme court actually does so we don't end up in these kinds of situations yeah speaking of broad historical view that's that's a good transition to um um, another aspect of history um but this time more international slash domestic um uh like whether or not the um u.s empire is in decline I, i was reading actually i'll tee it off with this article by um, Andrew Basevich, um, if you guys haven't read any article, if you guys have, haven't read any of uh, 
Andrew Basevich's books, I, I definitely recommend him because he, he's a very good uh, uh, critic of like U.S. Empire, but he formerly served in the military. But he, he's I mean, he, he's not on the left. He's more like kind of old school conservative, but he he, he has very good uh, critical analyses of uh, American like empire, basically. Um, I'm going to read uh, a couple quotes. So there, there's this article he wrote. The, it's in the Washington Post. came out a couple days ago. came out last week, actually. Um, and the title of it is The Age of American Privilege is Over. Um, so, uh, okay. So I'll just, um, okay, yeah. I'll start here. I'll read a couple. I'll read like maybe a couple sentences from it, and then I think these couple sentences will actually dovetail nicely into some of the things you and I have been talking about, Peter, about like you know where the U.S. Empire is at in the stage. Um, so he starts in the immediate in the immediate aftermath of World War II, a generation of statesmen grasped grasping this essential truth presided over a radical reorientation of basic U.S. policy. The result was a half-century of American global primacy. Now, however, the era of American primacy has ended. The imperative of the present moment is to adjust U.S. policy to rapidly changing circumstances. In the two two decades since 9-11, members of the foreign policy establishment have sought to finesse or avoid this issue. The failure of America's 20-year war in Afghanistan suggests that this is no longer possible. Proponents of American primacy commonly rely on euphemisms to describe it, with American global leadership a particular favorite. Critics with an aversion to euphemism prefer terms such as hegemony or imperialism. The correct term is privilege. Writing in 1948, George Kennan, director of the State Department's policy planning staff, made an essential point. We have about 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population, he wrote. Our real task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity. With this purpose in mind, uh, uh, Kennan's associates, chief among them George Marshall, Dean Akinson, James Forrestal, and Paul uh, Nietzsche, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, white males all, undertook a series of initiatives aimed at perpetuating this position of disparity. Their approach centered on devising mechanisms to project American power globally. Uh, among their best-known initiatives were the Truman Doctrine, the Marshall Plan, and NATO. Hardly less important was the National Security Act of 1947, which, among other things, created the CIA NSC 68, a secret document that in 1950 committed the United States to to the pursuit of permanent military superiority and fashioning the Strategic Air Command into an instrument of genocidal nuclear nuclear attack. Um, then, okay, so, uh, but on balance throughout the, so then he mentions the Vietnam War, throughout the decades-long Cold War, Americans enjoyed a way of life that made the United States the envy of the world free, democratic, and prosperous, so at least most Americans themselves firmly believed. The end of the Cold War served to affirm such convictions. 
Hence, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the demise of communism prompted few second thoughts regarding the now well-entrenched power projection paradigm, nor did 9-11. Indeed, in response to the terrorist attack on New York and Washington, George W. Bush doubled down, describing the nation's new enemy as heirs of all the murderous ideologies of the prior century. The United States would deal with them precisely as it, as it had dealt with <clears throat> fascism, Nazism, and totalitarianism. The recent past would define America's future. Um, then talks about, yeah, war and terror. Um, so, okay, so this is, this is where he ends. The paradigm of power protection, with its emphasis on military intervention abroad, no longer provides a relevant response to these threats. So threats like uh, climate, climate chaos, environmental deterioration, um, etc. Uh, the genius of Kennan and his contemporaries was to recognize the imperative of fundamentally changing America's approach to the world. The lesson of Afghanistan, confirmed by the astonishing display of incompetence that has accompanied the U.S. withdrawal, is that it's past time for the present generation to do the same. The American war in Afghanistan ends in bitter humiliation, but it should also serve as a wake-up call. The age of American privilege is gone for good. Uh, and there's another part in it. So I was, I was reading from a couple parts, but basically, like, I think this, um, the, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the, how badly it was executed, um, like, you know, it was, humiliating for the u.s yeah but i think anybody who knows the history you could yeah you could (laughs) maybe argue if you're kind of trying to put historical brackets around things that that is like the end of the american century uh was you know or maybe you know we'll look back on it and say that yeah the withdrawal from afghanistan though of course let's be clear like it's not like there's not going to be any u.s military in afghanistan but there's a combat mission I mean, I think that, I think, I mean, really, if you look at that, it's basically just like, they they know that the, their government is going to collapse any time, you know, and that, like, they're going to, you know, they're just going to, like, the Taliban's the only people that are around that can come in and even possibly stabilize the country. So, but I, like, at, yeah, as a gesture, as something that, like, we was like, hey, look, entire world, look at this. Look at where we're. Look at what we're doing. Um, we're go- and then now, yes, for it to end the way it did. It, I mean, yes, it does not look good. It does not look good for the U.S. of A. But one thing I will say, I love, I love reading like old time. I mean, and even the '40s is old time with this stuff, where mm-hmm. like they just come went out and said it because it didn't occur to them to be ashamed of it. Now everything is yeah hidden behind euphemisms gotta know like what the code words are to figure out what people are talking about but yeah george cannon yeah who you know was a great liberal statesman who came up with uh containment theory which you know was this great liberal compromise for not wanting to invade the soviet union yeah real real enlightened stuff like that and it was the containment philosophy that you know prompted like the idiotic u.s intervention in korea and then vietnam um you know and yeah like but they were at that point they were very clear like above and beyond like the threat communism posed is like yeah we well yes we're running shit we took over from the british and we want to keep it that way Mm -hmm. yeah and i think 
the U.S. war machine, the global war machine, especially like the new infrastructure, the new stuff that was added, particularly with the institutionalization of targeted killing through drone strikes and other means, that's not going anywhere. The bases and all that, like I don't think the hundreds, hundreds of bases the U.S. has globally, like they aren't going anywhere anytime soon. So the U.S. like imperial war machine is not going away but the the primacy like america's imperial primacy like that post cold war that really stretched into 9-11 like that kind of post cold war like america's number one baby kind of imperial primacy yeah that's taken i think a real acute decline um i think the afghanistan withdrawal is probably the most like overt example of it but i think like there are other signs of imperial decline occurring um because i think i i it's something i've been thinking about um even uh in the context of last summer's uh protests the the uprisings after the police killed the police murder of uh, george floyd and may of 2020 and the protests that continued pretty much throughout june and that spread globally um i think like the a lot of the it sparked some convert it sparked like uh i think it kind of raised some people's consciousness a bit about the nature of institutional racism in the united states and also um what america is as a country because i think like there 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 are a couple things that happened prior and then uh the george floyd uprisings were a major sort of like tipping point sort of point in in that so there was you know the obama years because remember like i mean if we go back to the obama years when obama was first elected um there is this idea that like, oh, America was entering like a post-racial society with the election of Obama because people, there are people thinking that like, okay, you have a black man, person of man of African descent, who's the president of the United States, a country founded on slavery. Then so people took that example as like, okay, that means like racism is close to ending. Like we're we're making real progress when it comes to racism in america then and this is something i i I keep harping on uh whenever i bring it when i try to bring this up is that because i remember covering um the first wave of black lives matter protests um the ferguson uprising in late 2014 and one thing that struck out to me that I i don't think was asked enough is like there were all these cases of uh, police killing of black people. And at this time, like there was documented video evidence just because of the rise of like the cell phone camera at the time, the, you know, late 2000s, early 2010s, there were more people with cell phone cameras and were able to capture like, you know, videos of police brutalizing and killing black people. So there's more evidence to show something that's, been existing in america for a long time but now like there's actual video evidence of it um and so then there was all these uh protests 
like major protests throughout the country in 2014. And what I don't think enough people asked was um, not enough people asked, like, what does it mean to have a black president who was elected for two terms, not just one, but two terms and still have clear evidence pointing to police brutalizing and killing black people and other non-white people, but particularly black people in the United States. Um, and Ob- the Obama administration didn't really do much about it in terms of account. Like there is, there was no like real police reform. There was some like, uh, I, I think, I think he, he put a, a couple police departments under a consent decree, but that was temporary because once, you know, Trump got in and once Jeff Sessions get it, got in, like they just ripped that up. So the, the consent decrees weren't really much. There was no real changes institutionally within policing across the United States. Um, and then Trump got in. And so now like, oh, like America, like white America's racist uncle has become president now. And people are like, oh, my God, like how 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 could this happen in America? There's this racist Cheeto. It's like, well, OK, I guess you weren't paying attention. Um, and then uh, the George Floyd uprisings happened last summer. And I think like it, basically what I'm getting at is that. I think what it seems to me is like there's been an, an some rising consciousness among some people about what America is as a country. Because if there's clear evidence that like you can have a black president for two terms and there's still racism in America, and you can have that have a black president for two terms, but then the next president is an overt white, so like a very you know has an overt like white nationalist base that got him elected so you can have some you know a veneer of racial progress and then have a backlash that puts you you go backward and you reverse it and you also have declining wealth for black people like it to to the point where like it puts black wealth to the point where it probably was back in like the 1930s and 40s before the civil rights act um so okay, you might have like some bit of like progress, but then there's a backlash. Things get in in many ways things get worse, or they stay the same. And so I think like I've been noticing some people asking questions, but like okay, but what is America as a nation? And basically, like this is what I mean about imperial decline is that I'm I'm noticing like an increased uh, jadedness with American identity and, and American history and what it really is, because I think a lot of people including some on the left and definitely a lot of liberals um, believe in this notion of progress for America. They're like, yes, America is greatest sin was slavery, but there's some progress and that progress makes America great as a nation. Yeah. Arc arc of uh, universes along with bends towards justice and especially coming out of the Bush years, because I don't, I mean, the Bush years seem like ancient history at this point, which I mean, it is basically <laughs> yeah. a historical period at this point. But I remember like, yeah, the NPR listening tote bag wearing types. I mean, they weren't very they were not big on America, you know, after like, yeah, the sort of, yes, extreme like Toby Keith uh, f- giant flag that covers the entire football field with the flyover shit got unleashed, uh, you know. Like, but 
the liberal version of that was Obama. And it was like this. Yes. No, actually, it's America. America is great because we it proved election of Obama proves our ability to redeem ourselves, because I don't know exactly why, but liberals love to talk about slavery as an original sin. They love to get religious about this shit. And like America has sinned and needs to be redeemed. And like, you know, a very unmarxist, like, which yes, they don't want to deal with materialism. And, you know, instead it's like, we're going to weigh America's soul as if, you know, as if any country has a soul, let's say, (laughs) but certainly this one as whether it's good or bad. And I mean, it's just, you know, and like deep down liberals think that it's bad, but they don't want to admit it. And Republicans, you know, are just like, no, it's great. It's, I love it. I love this country because they are simps for America because like the, you know, soul crushing suburban lifestyle that many of us hate, they love it. They love driving their giant trucks, you know, to Chick-fil-A and while <laughs> listening to, you know, this algorithmically generated country songs. I mean, they love it. They love it. Uh, uh, Brent Stapleton or Toby. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, they love it. And but, you, you know, every the, for me, it's not like the like that's not the question. I mean, it's might be useful as an artistic question or whatever as a historical question it's pretty irrelevant um in the sense that like it doesn't matter we're not it's not about looking into america's soul whether or not it's good i mean there is evil here but i mean you know humanity overall tries to do good wants to do good and america does have people in it and like some good things have been done here uh and but you know, there's a set of historical forces or whatever that were was propelling. I mean, I don't say it's American exceptionalism, but I mean, the United States did play a pretty heavy role in the development of capitalism, it's fair to say. And I, you know, the American empire is basically the entire structure on which like the international, like global capitalism rests. I mean, you mentioned NATO and NATO, like, yeah, I mean, European hegemony is entirely propped up by NATO. Let's just say that. Yes. Um, they, like, you know, we're, we're yeah, I mean, which is why I did find it funny when, you know, Trump, like, started complaining about NATO and every, all the liberals <laughs> like, how could you? I was like, well, you might have a point about that. Of course, he wasn't going to do anything. But that's, I mean, that's sort of the real question is that, you know, the U.S. military's ability to, like, invade any country in 48 hours or whatever the talking point is. Um, and uh, its ability to project power ar- around the globe is, you know, the firmament on which, like, the system of capital and also the U.S.'s status as the world reserve currency rests. It rests on military supremacy. Um, yeah, when, so when... And overall, in terms of enforcing the rules of, you know, global finance or whatever, like, yeah, the U.S. military still does a good job with that. But, yes, its inability to, like, actually win a war is definitely will, you know, it may lead people. I mean, even fucking Macron starts talking about, like, yeah, we need, like, a France, you know, like, a all-Europe military or whatever. I, I think that the idea... That, you know, emerging leaders in weak states were just going to be like, all right, well, we'll just pay the U.S. for security. I mean, really, it's a protection racket, you know, because, 
like most of those countries are not necessarily forcefully occupied, but it's like nobody, you know, no leader has the, uh, you know, political backing and out of, you know, bravery to like ask the U.S. to leave. But I mean, in the way those agreements go, like if, you know, they say we want the U.S. out, like the U.S. has to leave. And yeah, I, so you mentioned, uh, you know, the uprising stuff. I do remember when that was going out, I was like, Man, I mean, they'll they'll definitely do what it takes to, uh, you know, to restore order. Like, but like, if this is an ongoing thing, like the amount of mobilization needs to keep America under lockdown will hurt its ability to like honor all its agreements. Um, you know, in the like on the global stage, and yeah, I think just overall, people are not really like fucking with it, fucking with the U.S. like that anymore but the question is always like well you know i mean like russia's not going to do anything guys russia's always a bit player um but like yeah like what what does a world what does the world system look like you know absent american hegemony yeah and and i i the country singer i meant to say uh chris stapleton not brent so Chris I thought I thought you were making a joke about how all their names are the same. I mean, they all. I mean, yeah. In some ways, it could pass off as a joke, but like they all sound. I mean, Luke, Brian, Brent, Stable. Like they all sound fucking same. Um, I said it. Their yeah. names are probably computer generated as well. Um, yeah, <laughs> probably. But uh, one thing I, I forgot to mention: I think the the January sixth riot at least on the global stage, <laughs> really, I, I was talking to, I was talking to a friend of mine from Cameroon. Uh, we were talking about it. And he, he, he said that like, <clears throat> he said that he was talking about, he was referring to the January 6th, right? He said like, yeah, at this point, the U- United States has no moral authority to lecture other countries about democracy because of the right. And like, he's right. Like, like at this point, cause the whole idea, like that was part of like the, the sort of the myth of that was like one of the one of the major selling points with you know American global leadership or you know uh, which is basically American global American hegemony empire was that like um, basically you need to create some myth uh, um, to justify like imperialism like you know France had the civilizing mission. Um, uh, Britain had it had its own myth, and then the U.S.'s myth is that like we're promoting democracy, like is is quote unquote good for the U.S. to bomb these countries because we're doing it in the name of democracy and freedom. Well, the U.S. just showed its total contempt for democracy and freedom, like on, on top of any other like the U.S. has always had like contempt for democracy within the within you know its own political system and way elections are run but i mean the january 6th riot itself i think was sort of uh basically um almost like uh, america can't really talk the kind of shit that it used to talk and i think um i think that's like another sign of um how much like i guess on a pr level yeah, basically, that was, like, a major, like, fucking PR. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that was, like, it became, and the pandemic itself has also been, like, America has taken a beating, because, you know, other, like, 
Brazil or India, right? It's like, well, that's those are countries that have can have have pretty bad infrastructure already, right? But mm-hmm. you know, for for the you know poor people at least. But America is supposed to not be that country, and uh, yes, like I, like the yes, which you know, pandemic's still going on, and still like pretty ri- at ridiculous levels. But the uh, yeah, I mean that also is like no, we don't. Yeah, we, we don't we don't we need to we might need to take some time to focus on us because, you know, constant expansion really allowed the U.S. to just put off a lot of like you know real social contradictions. I mean, like getting like one of the interesting things about the history of Reconstruction is basically like, you know, the understanding of what needed to be done was there, and there wasn't initially like the political backing, but basically. It just proved too hard, and like Northern Capital is like, yeah, well, we can make more money, you know, building railroads out west. So they're just like, who cares about the South, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so they basically, you know, are like, all right, well, we'll just give it back to the planner class. And then like, you know, like when they're done building all the railroads and all that stuff, it's like, oh, well, these are basically just like colonial mining towns, um, and this is leading to an extremely violent class war. But uh, who cares? Let's go overseas. You know, we'll take mm-hmm. over Cuba and the Philippines or whatever. And then, oh, this class war is heating up and there's a depression. And, you know, we basically stumbled our way ass backwards into running the world. Like, you know, say what you will about like the British Empire, but they I, they went out and conquered it. Right. Like uh, we just kind of were just like, oh, everyone else started killing each other. And, you know, we were the industrialized company that was able co- company. Ha <laughs> ha country um cory booker actually did that one time i remember watching a speech of his yeah he did where he called the united states a company (laughs) Uh, (laughs) we're the only america the u.s was the only industrialized country that didn't get fucked up and so you know they were left holding we were left holding the bag but you know you know i for all the slavery and genocide in our history i mean we didn't like go out there and earn it you know, and so we never really knew what to do with with this, you know, position. I mean, the Cold War was, you know, a good enough Soviet Union's good enough enemy, but after that, it's it is very hard uh, to really like come up with a, uh, you know, mo- yeah, mobilizing enemy. Though, I mean, I, I mean, yes, the focus is on China, and uh, yeah, I did want. We'll use this to transition to. Just a few things out of China I wanted to make mention to because that is, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's going to be the real showdown is, yes. you know, basically the U.S.'s presence in Asia because, uh, you know, that's definitely stuff that is like only a product of like post-World War Two, And, you know, China definitely does not want it. And it's like, you know, oh, they, you know, what's going to happen in Taiwan or the South China Sea or whatever. Um, but, I, you know. I mean, the general line is that, like, China is a uh, capitalist, you know, and so it's not an actual ideological enemy. However, you know, and I'm not necessarily going to, like, get down and, like, is China socialist? But I think people, you know, there was a lot made about the restrictions China placed on, like, online gaming. But that was just, like, a part of a bunch of different stuff they were doing uh to you know combat not only corruption but basically like rein in the tech sector like 
you know, in the U.S., like Silicon Valley basically gets to do whatever it wants and no one can even think about regulating it. And China, like they are, you know, putting pretty stringent regulations on tech sector, on cryptocurrency, basically to stop all the, you know, like bubble machine stuff that is just like you can barely even call it capitalism at this point. I mean, and, you know, you know, they made an example of Jack Ma, who is basically like the Chinese Bezos. He, you know, was the CEO of Alibaba, which is basically the Chinese version of Amazon. But, you know, instead of like Jack Ma, you know, being like buying one of the country's leading uh, newspapers and basically, you know, doing whatever he wants, like, no, they like stopped him. They stopped his company or one of his companies like from going public, you know, and like the one of the one of the other big things was cracking down on uh, private uh, education, like private tutors, because that's exploded, you know, as like an industry. And it's an industry here, too. Like, I think before Bezos bought it or maybe he owns Kaplan, but the company that owned the Washington Post before Bezos bought it was Kaplan. Which, like, yes. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, made all the fucking SAT, you know, tutoring stuff. You know, the multi-billion dollar industry. And, 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 and not, and sorry to cut, but not, not just SAT, but like LSAT. Um, yeah. Like, like basically any kind of uh, standardized testing to get into any form of higher education. Um, like, Kaplan runs a lot of that shit. Like, for the private tutoring end. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think it's refreshing to at least see some country demonstrate an ability. Well, yeah, so they basically like forced all those companies to be nonprofit. And, you know, actually, one thing I found very funny is they're they're even moving in on like stand culture uh, among like like they issued, you know, policy talking about like the harmfulness of like online celebrity fandoms i was like <laughs> see i'm sorry but you know you gotta respect them for that sometimes that's what i'm saying is that like uh like i i think it's fair to say that president she like is serious when he says like you know the new sort of principal task china wants to uh, pr- tackle is inequality i mean that they basically kind of you know built the productive forces, so to speak, um, in their own, you know, enough to the point where, yeah, it's now, yeah, about evening that out for everyone. And like, yeah, like billionaires do take hits and do lose money in China. And I think that people can have criticisms, though. I, you know, they should be informed criticisms and not just, well, China has billionaires or whatever. But I I do think on some level, like, they do show that there is at least a different, you know, form of political economy other than rampant neoliberalism. So I think perhaps it is fair to say, I don't know if it's a competing economic model, though, or really if any of that mattered, really, because it yeah. didn't really matter. Yeah, I don't. I don't. But think... I just wanted to highlight some of that stuff, just just because I think it's worth looking at as yeah. as this stuff goes, because inequality is growing, and like that is like a primary source of social instability. Any fucking historian, social scientist, sociologist, anyone can tell you: rising inequality causes rising social instability. Mm-hmm. And so, on that note, 
I guess, yeah, that will transition to, I guess, the last thing I want to talk about. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll just mention this and before we like uh, uh, transition. Um, uh, I think, like, the rise of China as a global power, rather than, like, China being, like, an alternative economic system, I think that, like, changes the international game because um china china has enough power to rival the united states as as a global power so basically like for throughout much of well i would say okay the cold war was kind of um i guess you could say the the global system was uh sort of i guess you could say bipolar the u.s versus the soviet union but like the u.s was like still sort of yeah i yeah and then but post after the cold war like basically after the cold war and throughout like post 9-11 the global order has been unipolar which is that like the u.s has a single dominant like hegemon in the world and before i forget like the 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 british like the way they justify their empire was like the like the white man's burden so the french is like civilizing right. mission the british it was a white man's burden for the u.s is, is promoting democracy and i think like basically i think like that era uh, to to kind of conclude this part and uh, to kind of wrap up and then transition i think that kind of um unipol- unipolarity polarity or unipolar world order with the u.s as a single dominant hegemon I think, like, we're pretty much at the end of that. And I think the rise of China, basically, like, it, it um, is tipping the global pal- balance of power. Um, because, like, yeah, like, I, and, I, and I also think, like, you know, with uh, particularly like, the, the rising hate crimes against Asians in the United States, um, it's, it's that to me, I don't think it's just about COVID and the pandemic. I think it, a lot of it also stems from fears of, like, china being a rising power that can you know uh, that actually has like some real leverage against the the united states and and the west so um i think china is a very important player in that regard in terms of uh yeah just the the you know foreign policy and in the global order uh because yeah like china you know and and that's one thing i think the u.s is like you know I think that's one thing that the U.S. is going to be more focused on is basically, you know, trying to weaken the power of uh, China yeah, in but, the silliest of ways. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, and you know, all right. I I did want to say this earlier because I've been thinking about, like, you, you know, is this in, I always, I think 9-11, like, and the whole war on terror and all that stuff, like, it really changed from like you know the days when like you know J.P. Morgan locked everyone in every banker in a room and fi- figured out like oh th- until they could you know fix the economy or whatever like the pure rule by the bourgeoisie into you know of foreign policy of imperialism that stuff to like what is now like the blob that they call and the blob you know is like the coterie of like think tanks ex generals uh, journalists human rights ngos and that stuff that is all like they all it all wants um you know to preserve u.s hegemony or whatever but there isn't like one person running the show 
you know, or one class, one group of people making the decisions. It is just like, it's kind of decentralized or something. And, you know, the, yeah, like the last group of those people were uh, basically Cheney and Rumsfeld. And those, those are kind of the last masters of the universe. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, of the like, you know, Wasp or whatever types who are like, yeah, we're, it is our birthright to, you know, as white American men or whatever to run the world. Uh, there's, there's not those. And now, like, all the, all the structure is there. But nobody, like, has that kind of, uh, you know, just pure, I mean, arguably demonic, just, like, drive, I think. Everyone's kind of, like, just looking out for their own ass, looking out for their own careers, just trying to get grants and funding for their own little project or their own, you know, you know, like, little militia. Yeah, like, private military contractors, obviously, big part of that stuff, too. And it does make coordination for anything like you know intense like much harder and so you know they'll yes they'll try stupid stuff but they can't really like move to do the kind of you know crazy shit they did like in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. uh, you know the kind of like secret war in cambodia like you couldn't pull something like that off now you know i don't think so just because yeah like the, yeah we'd I think, and I think that's really kind of the story of, you know, America's decline is just like, yeah, this rule by blob, like it, instead of like, you know, for better or for worse, but it, it, like, yes, the group of people who run shit, like, yeah, now, now it's just, everyone's just on conference calls and looking at each other's, you know, and just watching the news to see what someone else did, but no one has like the actual plan for any of it you know yeah and that yeah that'll transition us to uh the last <clears throat> the last part of this episode um which i guess you can kind of say it's maybe it's a sign of uh another sign of like the u.s's imperial decline is the great resignation of 2021 um basically it's record numbers of people just saying like fuck it I quit my job, so records not record numbers of people quit their jobs. So I'm, I'm gonna I, I wrote I wrote this down in my notes because uh, these numbers are pretty staggering. So uh, during April, May, and June of 2021, 11.5 million workers quit their jobs. Uh, 3.6 million quit their jobs in May. Um, in April. 4 million workers quit their jobs. And I think as of right now, I think these are probably the latest numbers, uh, there are currently 9.2 million job openings and employers are struggling to find workers. And also, um, here in uh, California, there is a shortage of substitute teachers. Um, and by the way, this, this, this great resignation is happening across multiple industries. Uh, retail restaurants office jobs teachers like uh, 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 multiple industries and um uh there is actually yeah a shortage of substitute teachers here in california um substitute teachers have long been you know underpaid and underappreciated i mean if you were you know we're all students like students really don't give a shit about substitute teachers um but uh uh 
Let's see. Okay, so yeah, this is from calmatters.org, and it said in twenty eight in the twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen school year, um, the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing issued about sixty five thousand substitute teaching permits in twenty twenty to twenty one in twenty twenty to twenty twenty one school year. It issued close to forty seven, which is far less than uh, average. Um, and so it, um, it, I'm, I'm going to read here because it mentions like why the substitute teaching force is declining. Um, uh, yeah, many, apparently many substitutes left the profession last year because the pay wasn't worth the risk of being surrounded by unvaccinated students and staff. Uh, it's difficult to try to make a living off off substitute teaching. Uh, this is the quoting Aaron Estrada, substitute teacher in the Chula Vista Elementary School District. He said it's it's difficult to try to make a living off substitute teaching. He said for a lot of people it didn't seem worth it. Uh, some school districts, especially those in rural communities, rely heavily on retired teachers to work as substitute substitutes. But for those older educators, the risk of returning to the classroom is even greater. Uh, retirees have their own fears, said Rodin, the principal at Nevada Union High. They want to keep their own health at the forefront. Mike Tang, CEO of Swing Education, a company that helps over 200 school districts, uh, that helps over 200 school districts find substitute teachers said the sub shortage is consistent with staff shortages in the service sector. It's tough. Substitute teachers have left and haven't come back, he said, and we're potentially trying to compete with all the other industries for workers. Rosie Martinez, the president of the local teachers union at Chula Vista Elementary, said former substitute teachers are reluctant to return because they're making more money from unemployment benefits. At one point, we were only filling about half of teacher absences, she said. That's pretty much unheard of. And yeah, so they're talking about um, uh, just the reasons for lack of substitute teachers because schools have returned to in-person teaching and there's a shortage of substitute teachers because, you know, for age reasons, a lot of kids aren't vaccinated below the age of 12 and... The substitute teachers, like, they're anxious about, you know, teaching in classrooms where um, they're being, they risk being surrounded by unvaccinated students and staff. And uh, a lot of potential sub-teachers, like, uh, they don't want to risk it. So now a lot of districts are increasing the pay for substitute teachers to attract them to substitute teaching. But that's just one industry. I'm hearing other industries, like, um, you know, like people at office jobs, retail, and the uh, reasons I've been hearing are obviously, I, I think the pandemic has just been like a giant reset for a lot of people, people reevaluating, reevaluating like what's important in their lives. Um, a lot of people made more money on posted yeah. unemployment. Yep, unemployment that was me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but. Yeah, made more money on unemployment than at their actual jobs. Um, many people prefer to prefer remote work 
over in person and, it's, and especially commuting, um, I'm, you can count me on that. Like, I'm, I'm actually glad to not commute because uh, that, that is that can be a fucking pain at times. Um, people want a better work-life balance. Um, and there's like a bunch of other things, but I think this is just a really interesting development. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I mean, this is definitely something that it's close to home. I mean, I spent, I took a few months off the, uh, you know, to start this year, just cause like I'm trying, you know, spend time focusing on the book I'm writing or whatever. And, but also just like, yeah, I mean, people, I'm in like a bunch of line cook Facebook groups and yeah, like almost every week you see someone be like yeah i've been in this shit for you know 25 years but i just can't do it anymore and yeah especially service industries like the pandemic itself just you know puts it's just put a lot more stress and yeah for i mean i think especially you know when you're in that life uh you do you kind of get on a hamster wheel and you know bills pile up and then you have you're stuck uh you know you gotta stay in this job and you gotta put up with whatever crap's going on you gotta pay the bills you know and just make it to the next week make it to the next month and you don't ever have time to like and then you look back and you're like oh two years of my life just went by what the fuck did i just do um and you're like oh i didn't want to do that at all um and you know though yeah the pandemic gave people time to like think be like ah maybe i don't want to do this stuff anymore you know especially yeah if you're like retail i mean like that shit is objectively not a career like you cannot make a living out of it you know or anything resembling like financial stability and so yeah people are like well i'm gonna go back to school or or you know like when i came back i was like i'm coming back part-time um because you know i'm not letting this job take over my life again even if you know it's a bit of a financial hit uh you know because what like what i actually want to do with my life is more important than you know making someone else money and like (laughs) you know i that's that is you know true in every respect and but you know the whole system does not want people to realize that and more importantly the whole system is based on people not being able to make that choice uh Mm -hmm. and you know yeah the I mean, though, unemployment insurance, I think it went away on Labor Day, you know, great stuff, guys there, you know, and oftentimes whenever your bosses talk about it's like, oh, those fucking lazy workers, they just want to be on unemployment. Like, yeah, no shit. Uh, (laughs) No shit. I'd rather get paid not to work than to have to work. Um, I mean, (laughs) you know, yes, who wouldn't who wouldn't want to do that? Um, Yeah, I mean, just overall levels of precarity. And then, I mean, you know. Also, like, yeah, a lot of people died um, that, you know, did have some effect on the workforce. I mean, you know, like you go back, like historically speaking, the Black Plague ended up like giving like, you know, uh, peasants like a large amount of power. And it like, you know, kind of weakened It's kind of like the beginning of the end for feudalism because, you know, you didn't have the kind of surplus labor populations to... Uh, to, to, you know, whip into doing what it is you wanted them to do. And, I mean, this is... I feel very... You know, th- things feel very unsteady with this stuff because there definitely are, like, supply chain interruptions. And Americans are not used to, like, 
not be able to get whatever they want whenever they want it. And, you know, if you can say, oh, it's because of those lazy workers, you know, the fucking government giving people unemployment benefits, you know, they are willing to, like, literally just start whipping people so they can, you know, get their, uh, uh, you know, Chick-fil-A on time and fast or whatever. (laughs) There's definitely a sizable population that, you know, and some of them are work, you know, in the working class that are fine with that. But the flip side of that is that, uh, I mean, yeah, like workers have more power now than like in my adult memory. Like you have more power to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put up with that because what are they going to do? Like they can't, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many times at my job coming back. I was like, what are they going to do? Fire me? Like, please fire me like I'll, you know like yeah it's like no you know which is always like the fear of like well we'll have someone else you know in your place tomorrow like no you won't you won't be able to i mean and obviously that is not something that you know the employing class is willing to countenance for much longer but what are they going to do other than i don't know i guess immigration but i don't know how they're gonna you know that that's going to be a very interesting sell uh you know if they're gonna have to like you know institute a special class so they can traffic someone from the philippines to work at mcdonald's though i mean that they already do stuff like that but you know on a much larger scale because i mean you know it's at least like almost all white people's ancestors like moved to america because they're like i don't want to fucking work for somebody else they told me i can get land out here i just have to kill a few people to do it um mm-hmm. you know that like yeah that's that's what america's based on is like uh yeah i'm not doing this shit we're getting someone else to do it i'm sick of doing it in europe uh so that is very much an american mentality and i guess i mean you know historically immigration is what's gonna you know smooth this out and get the labor market back to the way employers want it but you know are you gonna sell that to the republican base i mean that's gonna be that's gonna be a fun <laughs> It's going to be a very, so it's going to be a very interesting political economic question, but I would just, you know, use this moment to point out that this, you know, is the moment, if there were ever any moment to like push for organizing your workplace, like for organizing the working class, like these types of moments where it's like, yeah, the, you know, it could lead to an actual opening where like it could actually change shit. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's another thing. Yeah, because uh, their workers right now have like more leverage than like they, this has given workers a lot more leverage than they have before, which is which is a great thing. And one thing I wonder is if it would uh, in- increase some increase uh, class consciousness. Um, but yeah, like, I think a time like this is a really good time to actually organize workers and realize. Well, actually, I mean, organize and ra- raise levels of class consciousness, um, because I think like this great resignation, this great resignation is like a big middle finger to capital, and I think it, more people quitting their jobs and expressing their dissatisfaction, like I think those people, like you know, are ripe for more heightened uh, class consciousness and um, being part of a larger uh class struggle and labor movement um in the in the u.s because that's i mean that's something like you know especially a lot of things that we talk about on this podcast um 
having a strong uh labor movement and especially especially like organized labor within oppressed you know non-european ethnic communities i think is it's incredibly crucial um there's always been a strong uh you know labor has played a major role in 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 in, in black liberation and that still remains the case so i think um this great resignation i think is a is a good time to um raise class consciousness especially like i mean you know the working class in the united states is for the most part not white and i think there's a lot of people like you know a lot of non-white workers who could be more you know uh well organized like you know in terms of union membership and stuff like that so um yeah uh anyway it's an hour 16 but um i think that's i think we've talked yeah uh, yeah that's a good place to leave it you know we Mm -hmm. we are you know these are we're at historical junctures i mean we really are and that you know that's frightening and there's obviously some horrible elements to it but you know um yeah uh yeah i yeah like this you know this is the time to to uh take advantage of this stuff because uh clearly we've seen what the ruling class like is capable of doing and it, they this is these aren't this ain't the a team i feel like running this shit anymore this is <laughs> like i you know i i'm like man if i can sit here and realize what you guys are doing wrong like then yeah they're fucked up <laughs> also bush did 911 yeah. i just wanted to say that not literally <laughs> but like yeah we did that shit you know, yeah. other other people there's other places to look up you know that's just like very hard i will just say this um that like i the most like oh truthers are idiots uh stuff that I don't think anyone can really uh, refute is that, like Saudi intelligence, like bankrolled and you know put this op put the whole operation together, and you really think they could do that, and the CIA wouldn't find out about it, right? Yeah, and um, since know, we're doing I'll, the nine eleven episode, I just had to get it, it in there. I also think like nine eleven. Now, now that I look back, um, for our generation, for millennials, uh. Because now, like uh, you know, uh, Gen Z like are in the well. Yeah, they don't remember it. They don't remember yeah. a world before it. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I think for millennials, I think um, for our generation, I think it really politicized a lot of us, a lot of millennials. Um, and I think like millennials who are on the left, uh, a pattern you'll find is that a lot of them were not. N- not as nine eleven, but the Iraq War and the War on Terror yeah. was a very radicalizing moment. Well, it definitely was. It definitely was for me. It definitely played a role in like my and and, and specifically seeing this, you know, tragic event happen, and you know, yes, this outpouring of grief, but instantly seeing it weaponized into foreign aggression right. was something that I don't. I mean, I didn't necessarily have like the words for it at the time, but. It at the very least, it you know, and this is happening like in adolescence, like definitely got in me that like there's something very wrong about this society that we're doing yeah. this. This is not, mm-hmm. this is not what regular people do. That people, you know, it's just like 
all the other stuff of America, all the just, you know, psychic poison that's just existing in the background, that shit was on full display. And yeah, I think it, I think, you know, along with like adolescent depression or whatever, it just, yeah, living in a society where like, yeah, we're going to do this. Like everyone basically knows that we shouldn't, but you know, a small group of people really want to kill a lot of people. And so we're just going to let them do it. Uh, was something that I was, you know, yeah, definitely got the wheels turning just because so much of my political journey is just trying to figure out what the fuck's going on. And I think, yeah, the the sequence from 9-11, the anthrax scare, uh, which, you know, just to also say that the people who got the anthrax letters were the ones that were holding out against passing the Patriot Act. Uh, that's um so just to throw that one out there but then yes into uh the iraq war and you know all that stuff it's like uh yeah there's there is something very sick going on here um and Mm -hmm. trying to figure out you know where did that come from and what can it actually do you know it's yeah i mean like a million dead bodies later right like you know Mm -hmm. we're just sitting here sort of like yeah that happened but you know, I don't think any, I don't think anyone who like wasn't in Iraq or Afghanistan like really understands the scale of what we did. So yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah, we'll we'll end on that note. Um. Uh. So thank thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Um. Again, to support this podcast, become a patron at patreon.com/realsoncarhours. Also, you can make a one-time donation. Uh, to support the podcast at paypal.me slash real Sankara hours. And again, follow us on Twitter at Sankara hours. So anyway, um, that concludes this episode. We'll do our sign out. Keep the faith and stay dangerous. Take care. Peace.